Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Kate Fulton. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Clark Roslin. Coming up this week, we'll be talking to Sir Eric Reich, who is the Kindertransport Chairman for the Association of Jewish Refugees. And he was at an event hosted by His Royal Highness Prince Charles, which was marking the 80th anniversary of the Kindertransport. And we'll also be talking to Dr. Vivi Lachs, who is an author and historian about her book, Whitechapel Noise, which looks at Jewish immigrant life through Yiddish song and verse. And we'll also be talking to Laura Marks, OBE, who is the founder of Mitzvah Day. And she'll be talking to us about the success of Mitzvah Day 2018 and why it featured a lot of chicken soup. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Prince of Wales attending an event to mark the 80th anniversary of the Kinder Transport, which brought around 10,000 children to safety in the UK from Nazi Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia during the lead up to World War II. Prince Charles apparently looked as touched to speak to the former child refugees as they were to speak to him at the special lunch at St James's Palace. Many shared their stories with the prince and even sang happy birthday to him because he'd turned 70 the previous week. The holiday rental company Airbnb is removing the listings of some 200 entries considered to be in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. One furious Israeli minister called the move discriminatory and another said Airbnb's operations in Israel generally would be limited. Airbnb said it had to consider the safety of guests and whether the existence of such listings contributed to human suffering. The company also said it was facilitating the rental of property in stolen Palestinian land. Five Jewish schools are to hire specialists to help with the mental well-being of students. JFS, JCOS and Yavna College are amongst the schools which will join a three-year pilot project designed to identify and help those students who are suffering in silence. The initiative will bring together Jewish organisations and charities working in education, mental health and youth services. The BBC's EastEnders has become the first soap to tackle the issue of anti-Semitism in a new storyline. The programmes use the character of Dr Harold Legg, who's played by the 92-year-old Jewish actor Lena Fenton, to address the issue. One episode showed him visiting his mother's grave in a Jewish cemetery, only to see graffiti and a swastika daubed on her tombstone. And finally, Muslims and Jews united to make more than 2,500 bowls of chicken soup for the homeless as part of Mitzvah Day 2018. The 10th annual Jewish-led day of social action saw more than 25,000 volunteers take part in over 1,400 events across the country, including many interfaith initiatives. And we'll hear more about Mitzvah Day 2018 when we speak to the founder, Laura Marks, later in the show. Thank you, Viv. And first on the Jewish Views this week, Fran Wolfish, the features editor of Jewish News, joins us to review this week's copy. And let's look at the front page and the headline reads, Thank you, Britain. Who are you saying thank you to, Fran? Well, it's actually all the kinder who came over from Germany and Austria in the wake of the Kristallnacht 80 years ago. There were children who, basically thousands of children were helped to escape Nazi persecution. Their parents had obviously hoped for them to have a better life over in Britain. And this all took place 80 years ago, starting from this week. And many of the kinder went on, obviously, you know, a safe, secure 
happy life afterwards. They managed to rebuild themselves, rebuild their families. But there's actually a fascinating exhibition at the moment at the Jewish Museum in Camden. It is worth going to see about the kinder. And there are six kinder who speak about their experiences. And many of them actually talk about the effects of loss as well, something that's not always explored, the fact that they were torn away from their families. Some of them were very, very young when they came over and they never really got over losing their parents, never seeing their parents again. And that is something obviously to consider how incredible these people are, that they were able to rebuild their lives after everything that they knew had been essentially taken away from them. We'll be talking about them a bit later on in the programme, so it's interesting to hear you say that. And going on, I mean, that was obviously a very sad occasion, but turned out to be a happy occasion for for the, the kids on the kinder transport, but something even more desperate, Jewish women's aid and yes. domestic violence. Yes, well, it's yes. Jewish Women's Aid have actually released a new survey this week. They did an internal audit of their users. I think up to 600 women a year are actually coming to them and being helped. And they found that on average, Jewish women are waiting 11 and a half years before seeking help. And the national average is actually nine years. So Jewish women are actually waiting another two years at least before telling anyone that they are suffering from domestic violence. Now, there are a couple of reasons why this might be. And essentially, what it boils down to is that the Jewish community is a very family-orientated community. And there's this sort of feeling of pressure that they have to maintain family life. So I think Jewish women are holding back. They're trying to keep their families together, even at the sake of their own safety. It might be something that you're, you're not aware of, but is this throughout the Jewish community or is it in a specific area of the Jewish community? I don't think the data has been broken down as such into that. Essentially, all we need to know is that this is happening and that domestic violence is happening within the Jewish community. And it's important for people not to shy away from asking for help and equally for Jewish professionals, doctors, people to recognise that these women do need help. They need to be extracted from that situation sooner, not later. Another item in the paper, which doesn't seem to be far away from many of our thoughts these days, is dementia, those living with all different forms of dementia. And that features in the paper as well this week. Yes, I actually went along to Jewish Care recently to find out more about their Singing for Memory project. It's a very, very interesting project that they, they do for people living with dementia and also their carers. If you are affected by dementia you can go along and you basically sing songs in a circle from you know songs that you might remember from your younger days songs from the 40s and 50s and incredibly although a lot of people have lost the ability to speak to engage to converse suddenly when they hear music everything comes back to them they're able to sing you know, they've seen people, you know, the people who are running these sessions, they said they've seen people get up and dance with their partners. One man said, you know, my wife comes back to me when she comes here. There was one man, he was completely silent throughout the whole session. And at the end, when everything had gone quiet, he got up and broke out into opera. Turned out that he was actually an amateur singer and, you know, he'd always enjoyed music and he thought he would take the stage. So it is incredible what memory and music, you know, how they're interlinked in this way. And it's a very, not only does it help people with dementia, 
engage again back into engaging with their family with their friends but also it's lovely for the people looking after them to see them like that it's very difficult looking after people with dementia and not always being able to get anything back from them so this is a lovely way to be able to do that from my own experience I know my grandmother had dementia and she also lost the ability to speak but she was a very keen piano player and whenever I used to go I used to play her music and she would just follow along with her fingers you could see her tapping away on her her bed sheets and she was clearly enjoying something from it even though she couldn't tell us. Just before we finish the paper review we have a guest with us a one that you've heard many times before, who is leaving us, leaving the Jewish news, Andrew Sherwood. Hello. Hello, Kate. How long have you been here? I mean, five minutes. I was going to say, I've just literally walked in here. (laughs) (laughs) With the Jewish news, I'm actually trying to say. I know. I've been here for the best part of 15 years. Yeah. Goodness me, Fran, have you got some some dirt that we can dish and, you know, share with everybody listening? Tons of dirt. Apart from my gutter mouth, obviously. (laughs) It'll be a huge loss. And obviously, we don't know now who's going to say thanks, Viv, which is the biggest loss of all. (laughs) Can I end this with bye, Viv? That would be fitting. (laughs) Oh, I think we need to hear that just just for old time's sake, don't we? Thanks, Viv. (laughs) (laughs) So where are you off to and why are you leaving? Oh, this is the best story. Go on. Basically, I'm going to hopefully continue in journalism in a freelance capacity. And I'm also embarking on a completely new career change, which is to hopefully become a driving instructor. Wow. That's completely different. It is completely different. A whole new gear. Oh, that was a pun, wasn't it, Fran? Yes. It's yeah. not really putting the brakes on your career as such, is it? It's just it's accelerating I, I, it. But you've I indicated just, to us that you would like to. Oh, Sorry, we, you are we, good. we could just keep going. You are yeah. good. Yeah. I just want to hopefully drive forward with my new career. And You were a little bit exhausted, weren't you? <laughs> oh, dear. But no, if, obviously, if any of your listeners out there have people who are looking to learn, come May time, then I am your guy. <laughs> you will be the person we shall go to, the country person for driving lessons. Is there a whole course that you've had to go on? To, yes, to I mean, to be, it takes at least six months to actually qualify. So there's right. a lot of study. From being a driver? You've yeah, then yeah, got yeah, to, yeah. Right. I mean, I started a couple of weeks ago. It's at least six months. They estimate six to nine months. And there's three tests I have to pass. So I'm going through the theory test again and the hazard perception test. Gosh. Yes, once that's done, and then it's just a practical side. So going out with people in the cars, and as Fran will tell you, I'm a very patient person, so that shouldn't be an issue. Yes, and having worked here for 15 years, I assume hazard perception is probably <laughs> a natural thing to you. You thought we'd have practiced this conversation, but we didn't. <laughs> no, it's, all it's always better. It's always better off the car. I always think there should that's be funny. some lessons if you've had points, you know, to sort of go out with someone and find out what you're... So not, not necessarily someone who's learning to drive, but someone who's been driving for a while. So maybe you've sort of forgotten, maybe that's a whole new, new niche for you. Possibly just to, just to reacquaint themselves with some of the rules of the roundabouts. Say, yeah, no, that's my pet hobby horse, <laughs> which I'm saddling up. And I'm trying to think: Do people actually are they of that mentality when if they've been driving driving for X amount of years, they feel mm, I need a little brush up? I don't think people would actually want to do that. No, but if they get points instead, oh, if that's this, because some, because you can go to a sort of ninety minute driving school, and I just wonder whether a one on one good idea thinking out loud what are I we think, no I think that's a great idea and I think that's a whole new avenue for okay. you I think should, having driven talk. round to Edgeware um, I quite agree with you there's a lot of people out there need Get, help getting back to the Jewish news yes. and Andrew what's been the highlight of your career here 
apart from this last five minutes apart from um, the last five minutes <laughs> um, I don't know I mean I came in as a sports journalist mm. and back in the day there was we devoted a lot more coverage to sports so when I think back to some of the events that I covered you know going to Israel to cover Israel play England I've been fortunate enough to cover Wimbledon over the past best part of 10 years so that is a great perk and I've, you know, I've travelled around the world I've covered Maccabee games mm. European Maccabee games been to Israel for a couple of weeks I've really enjoyed that. And more latterly, I've become the community editor. Right. So dealing with charities and yes. synagogues and organizations. It's, it's a different perspective mm. on the community. And it's also something that's been enjoyable. When you, when you go forward and you say you're going to have some, do some freelance journalism, is it going to be sports-based? That Hopefully. is the idea. Right. So it'll be kind of football reporting yeah. on the weekends and midweeks just to keep me going. Yeah. Right. Well, sadly, that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. Thank you so much, Fran. But Andrew, good luck as Thank you drive yes, off luck. into the distance. We will look in our rear view. Right, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. This week, His Royal Highness Prince Charles hosted a reception to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Kindertransport. Many members of the Association of Jewish Refugees attended the lunch and shared their stories with the prince. Some of them even sang happy birthday to the royal, who turned 70 last week, as most people probably know, and uh, they even bought him a card. Well, let's find out more about this event by speaking to Sir Eric Reich, Kindertransport Chairman for the AJAR, who is with us now. Sir Eric, what was the evening like? It was a great success. I mean, I must say that the prince went round and made the kinder very, very happy. He is very, I think I'm, I'm right in saying, very pro-Jewish and very interested in the whole story of the kinder transport. Well, I think he has an interest in the fact that the British government of the time allowed children in. They were mostly Jewish, of course, because that's what was happening in Central Europe. But his interest is the fact children had to leave their parents behind and come to a country where they, many of them didn't speak the language even, didn't know the culture or anything. And I think he's very proud of the British government of the time. Except they could have been even kinder, perhaps, and allowed the parents to come as well. Well, you must remember that Great Britain or England or whoever you want were on the verge of a war with Germany. And the one thing they couldn't do, and also there were problems with work and God knows what in the United Kingdom. The fact is that they let they allowed 10,000 children in. And I think we should call that as a blessing because it's the only country that allowed the children in. I think he became interested in it after his visit to Krakow, where he met the WJR. And at that particular point, they told him what they were before that. And he became interested in the fact Britain allowed 10,000 children. Now, you must remember as well that his grandmother from his father's side, who was Greek, allowed Jewish refugees into her home in Athens during the war. Yes, she was famous for that. She, she, she was a, a absolutely amazing about that. Did the children 
when they came. Were you one of them? I was one of them. I was only four years old. And what happened to you when you arrived? Well, (laughs) I arrived with my middle brother at the end of August 1939, three or four days before the war broke out. And my brothers, my older brother came a year before me, and they went to the Jewish preschool. I was too young to go to school. So they sent me via the British composer, Ralph Vaughan Williams, to Dorking. Could you tell us something about the event itself? Describe what actually happened when Prince Charles was there. Well, what happened is that there were tables, 10 or 11, I can't remember exactly how many. Everybody sat down. There was tea or coffee and cakes and sandwiches. And then the prince came and he went from table to table and sat down and talked to the people on that particular table. He talked to everybody at every table or just certain tables? No, there were were, were 10 or even 11. He went to each one of them. He was there for an hour and a half. Gosh, that's, uh, that's quite something. It says a lot for the prince, actually. What effect did it have on you personally? Well, what did you feel about it all? Well, I didn't have time to think. I had to go round with him, so I didn't think. <laughs> but I was very happy to see that so many kinder were themselves smiling and laughing. And he's a bit of a joker, you know. He, he tells jokes and he laughs. And he's interested in their past. There can't be all that many kinder transport children alive, I suppose, now, are there? Well, there are about four to five hundred. Four to five hundred. And, and they meet regularly, do they? Yes, we, we meet once a month at the Elite Garden Synagogue. We have a speaker, there's a lunch, and about 30, 30 of them come. But you, you must remember that we did a, a survey about 10 years ago, and what came out of it was that the average age was 12, 12 and a half. Now, I was only four, and I'm 83, so they are on average eight to nine years older than I am in their early 90s. Yeah, that's quite a thought. I was, some years ago, I remember going to the most amazing meeting at Palace of Westminster, and the people I, among the people I met were some kindertransport who had had no connection with the Jewish religion the moment they arrived, but they still all came, and they still felt, although they were no longer Jewish, if you understand what I mean, they still felt very, very much part of their whole thing. It did happen to a lot of them, including myself. I mean, I was taken in and fostered by a family who were refugees, but they were not, not Jewish. And so until my, pa- my brother found me, I lived, I lived as a Christian. I went to church and Sunday school. So this happened to quite a few of the kinder. And you must remember that although... A lot of the Jewish associations helped. So did the Christian ones, particularly the Quakers. Uh, can you also tell us about your work at the AJR? What do you do as the chair of Kindertransport? 
Well, I'm also a trustee of the AJR. So I go to all the meetings, obviously, and I, I am the one that organizes or helps to organize the lunches and what's happening now, the 80th anniversary. Because 10 years ago, we had the big, very big anniversary at the JFS, at the Jewish Free School. So my work as the chairman is to have meetings, obviously, with the committee, and I have five or six members, but very soon we won't be around. Well, let's hope that you'll be around for a little while longer anyway. Sarah Greich, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with The Jewish News. Now, we all know that the East End of London was associated with Jews for many years. Some of us may even have a story or two about what life was like for our community in those days. Well, our next guest knows a little more than most. She is author and historian Vivi Lax. Vivi's book, Whitechapel Noise, looks at Jewish immigrant life in the East End of London with a particular focus on the Yiddish culture through song and verse. Vivi joins us now to tell us some more. Welcome. Hello, thank you. I love the title, Noise. That, that has a whole sort of idea of this cacophony of sound. You haven't called it music. Why is that? Because it's not actually about music. I mean, the, the noise that was the noise of Whitechapel was people shouting and crying and speaking and laughing. And I mean, all the sounds of living that were going on. And you would have heard it like in the lane or in the cafes or in the theatres because everyone talked in the theatres, didn't really watch the theatre. And the, the music that you mentioned, the song and the verse, a lot of that actual musical sound has disappeared. And what I'm interested in as a historian is the lyrics, because the lyrics of that tell us about the noise. And the noise is really about the discussions, or should I say the arguments that were happening. So people were very different, and there was lots of noisy conversations going on. Just to sort of set the book in context to sort of say where we are. We're talking 1884 to 1914. Why did you choose that specific time? Well, in the mid-1880s, or from 1881, the waves of immigrants coming from Eastern Europe accelerated significantly, and the population of London's East End significantly increased. And 1884 was a particularly important date, because that was the date that the first Yiddish newspaper was published in London. And it was a newspaper called Der Polische Jidl, which means the Polish Jew, or the Polish small Jew. But it's an affectionate saying, the, po the Polish Jew. And that newspaper was actually a socialist newspaper, but it was the first Yiddish press. And so it includes, it was sort of on the left, but it included quite a variety of, of, of information. And it was geared towards the greener, the new immigrant who was coming to London and trying to give him and her information about how to acculturate to British norms. And so that was sort of the starting point. And then 
what I wanted to do was I wanted to find everything I could in rhyming couplets that was in the newspapers. And when I started, and I didn't set an end date at this point, but when I started looking, I realized there was so much that I took the end date at 1914 to give a 30 year block, a sort of generation, but also because obviously in 1914 things change. So it felt like a rather natural 30 year period to look at. So we're looking at this this 30 year period. How many people would be around the East End, how many people would be reading the the press would be interested? Well, historians disagree about actually how many people were living there. But let's say as a bold figure, we've got 120,000 people who are sort of like Yiddish speaking immigrants, some of them very recent immigrants, some of them not so recent. But the numbers are really inflated because there are a lot of trans migrants in London. And that is people who are coming from Eastern Europe on their way to America. And they come there and maybe they didn't buy a ticket all the way. Maybe they were sold the wrong ticket. Maybe they were just taking a break in the transport. For whatever reason, they're stopping in the East End of London and they're spending time there. And so we've got a very vibrant, large community that could have been double the actual population of who is essentially living there. And how many streets and what what sort of area? Just to kind of put it in like a, a geographical, sort, or even name a few, just so that people can sort of put Well, I suppose it we're looking at the Whitechapel area around Allgate and around Stepney. So we've got Commercial Road and Whitechapel Road are the two main arteries of the East End going up to Stepney. So it's that sort of area. It's not a terribly large area, but it was very, very densely populated. So, I mean, possibly more densely populated than Edgware and Hendon and Golders Green today, I'm not sure. But I mean, essentially, it was that Jewish that when you walk sort of in Golders Green, you feel that Jewish. It had that very strong I want to go back to the noise. I want to go back to the atmosphere. Talk us through a little bit the kind of sounds that would be around on the street, because you've you've brought it to life so beautifully. Share a bit more detail. Okay, so... uh, I mean, first of all, that the motor car is around, so you are hearing cars, but you're also hearing horses. And I think this is an interesting time because you've got both forms of transport around at the same time. But you've got, because there are so many Jews there, and a lot of them are from Jews, so you've got a lot of stiebels and little, what they call chevras, on sort of every street corner. So, of course, you're hearing prayer and you're hearing singing but also you're hearing market sounds so you've got people shouting their wares and then you, and you've just got a lot a lot of chatter and 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 I mean I think shouting Jews have always liked to shout at each other rather than just chat at home. I understand you've got uh, you also incorporate the, the Yiddish music and you're interested in and I think you've you've um, sung some of the music yourself well, when I was looking for, for poems and songs, I was essentially interested in coupletten, which is rhyming couplets. So, of course, a lot of them are sung. So anything in couplets, first of all, almost all the poetry at this time is written in couplets. So what I found was three genres of poetry. There was a lot of socialist poetry. And the reason for that was that the socialists saw poetry as a strategy, as a way of getting to people. Because if you're reading a newspaper mm. and there's lots of long articles, and you suddenly see a poem, it's easy to read. It's pithy and it's direct. Absolutely. And it's eye-catching. And then you've got also music hall songs, because this was a time where the Cockney Yiddish music hall was in full swing. And so you've got people singing songs that are very silly, a little bit edgy. Risque. Uh, yeah. And also deeply moving and horrifying as well. That They're writing about things going on in Eastern Europe and they're writing about things going on really locally in London. And then you've also got a lot of satirical verse. Now, out of all this material, lots of it was put to music. 
Certainly all the musical songs are music, but a lot of the poetry is also put to music at this time. I sing with a number of bands and I was very keen that some of this music comes back. So uh, there's a band called Klezmer Club that I've been singing with for ooh, decades. <laughs> and a quick plug for this incredible for... looking, uh, This tell us a bit about the CD that I'm holding here. Okay, so this is a band called Kacharnas. It's a slightly odd name in Yiddish, but it essentially it it's, it's comes from a, a, a song called Fregnit Kein Kacharnas, which means don't ask silly questions. It's a bit of a word play on Fregnit Kein Kashas. And I wanted, as I was finding more and more songs in song sheets, and they, a lot of them didn't have tunes to them, I really wanted to bring these back. I thought they're such interesting songs and they tell us about these little bits of history that are really fascinating. So I brought this band together to record the material and oh. that's been uh, really fun. I want to know, was the, the Yiddish mama the typical sort of, I don't want to talk about gender stereotyping or what the, was it was very much more very distinct defined roles for the men and women on the streets in these days? I mean, yes and no. I mean, on the streets, in the families, I guess. I mean, yes and no. It's a time of huge change. That's one of the reasons that in a way there's so much noise and there's so much, I guess, intensity and tension and worry because it's a huge time of change. And for women in particular, I mean, the turn of the 20th century, we have the suffrage movement. Everybody's discussing sex and sexual relationships and gender and prostitution. I mean, all these issues are really high on the agenda and people are very anxious about it. There's a, a white slave trade that's going into Eastern Europe and like capturing young women. And there's the roles of men and women in the family are really changing. I think men who've come from Eastern Europe because they couldn't make a living there often and they've come over with their families and they're really struggling in London and so their wife also goes out to work and they're still struggling and they take in a lodger and so it's all about like the man of the house is is feeling that he can't in a way own his place so We've much. got the community as you've described it and it was very tight-knit, very distinct. How did that we have now sort of multiculturalism. How did the that group integrate with those around them? Okay, so two points, first of all. So it is a tight-knit Yiddish-speaking community, but that community, it's not a tight-knit Jewish community because when the immigrants came in, there was already an established Jewish community there that were much more middle class and were giving a huge amount of philanthropy to the immigrants to try and essentially get them to be as middle class as quickly as possible. So, I mean, that, that, so it's not a tight-knit community in all, but the community, the immigrant community, had quite, both communities had a lot of contact with the English communities around them. Certainly, Maurice Vinchevsky, who was the editor of the Polish Yidl and later the Arbeiterfreien, the workers' friend, the newspapers, and wrote a lot of the poetry, he was a comrade of William Morris. And so the, and William Morris, the sort of arts and crafts artist and poet and political agitator, I mean, they, they are both tight comrades and they're both working together and Morris is talking to the immigrants and, and Vinchevsky is going to the English socialists meetings and sometimes some of the strikes and the union action to try and improve the sweatshop conditions, they're happening together. So you've got people coming from inside the community and outside the community. So there's, although there is anti-Semitism, there is a lot of connection as well. And for those of us who would like to read the book, who haven't haven't yet had the, had the pleasure, how do they get hold of it? It's published by Wayne State University Press and it's on their site. 
And if they quote the name of the book at checkout, they'll get a discount as well. Can't do better than that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Vivi Lax. Thank you. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or need the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, for many of us, it's become a firm fixture of the Jewish calendar. Every year around this time, thousands of Jews around the world come together to do good deeds. Of course, I'm talking about Mitzvah Day. This year was arguably bigger and better than ever. Amongst other things, it saw more than 2,500 bowls of chicken soup being made for the homeless. Let's find out more about this remarkable day from founder of Mitzvah Day and friend of the show, Laura Marks, OBE, who joins us now. Listen, before we talk about this year, can we go back 10 years and just very briefly tell us how you came up with the idea of Mitzvah Day? In 2000, the year 2000, I moved to California and I lived there for three years with my husband and small children. And our synagogue there had a mitzvah day, a day of social action. And when I came back to Britain in 2003, I thought what a wonderful idea that was, what a positive outward facing expression of our Judaism. So along with what was then the uh, JCC for London and became the JW3, we set up some pilots and then in 2008 became a charity in our own right. So the 10-year anniversary goes from when we became a charity. And the idea is very simple. It's that everybody can do something for somebody else. And we have two rules, really, on Mitzvah Day. One of them is we don't collect money because we want people to engage in the issues themselves to go along to the old people's home to cook the soup to feed the homeless whatever it is and the second rule we have rule it's a funny word but the second thing we have is we don't do things on our own mitzvah day is all about bringing people together so whether you're doing it with somebody from a different generation or somebody from a different part of the jewish community or somebody from a charity that you've never come across before or from somebody from a different faith group which is obviously a huge part of our work now we encourage people to do it together because social action can really bring people together in a way that other things, not all other things, but many other things can't. How many, how many people are actually involved in the charity, the Mitzvah Day charity? Not the people that took part, but just people that yeah. help run it. So we have three full-time members of staff. We have a two part-timers. We're very, very small. <laughs> we're tiny. You know, we're a bookkeeper a little bit. So we, 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 we're very small. But what we do have is an army of coordinators. So we have every community around the country that's taking part. And in the UK, that's about 430 communities this year and then about another 300 abroad. Every one of those communities has a coordinator, at least one coordinator, and they are volunteers. And those are the people who really make Mitzvah Day happen. And they're the people who I sort of salute each year because they're the people who drive the projects, who set up the projects, who form the relationships with the charities, who work out the logistics, who get the volunteers to come, who make sure they've got the paint or the carrots or whatever it is. So even though we're a tiny little organization, we have a huge amount of people involved actually doing the work. You mentioned that you don't ask for money on Mitzvah Day. How do you, you obviously can't survive without money. So how do mm. you go about collecting donations for Mitzvah Day for the charity? Well, we're very lucky. We have a few very committed 
philanthropists who support us and without them we couldn't we couldn't function so that that's what keeps our infrastructure going and then beyond that we get all sorts of donations in kind so as i say if we if we're making chicken soup interestingly we had this big flagship chicken soup event at the East London Mosque and all of the food which was 90 chickens, carrots onions, you name it all of the food was donated by a caterer who wanted to help the space was donated the expertise is donated so we have an enormous amount of donated help which enables us to function A lot of chickens in one big saucepan (laughs) (laughs) Two or three saucepans (laughs) I'm vegetarian myself so I don't get near the stuff but there were a lot of chickens, believe me. Can you tell us about some of the other deeds that people took part in in this year? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we had some lovely projects this year. I mean, about 30 or 40, we're not quite sure yet, because it takes a while for all the information to come in, communities took part in making chicken soup, which was all about the symbolism of Jewish home values, caring, nurturing, welcoming, and giving that out in bowls of chicken soup. Um, we had a lot of projects related to Ajax this year. We sent along about 40 people to Stuart, the Ajax parade. I went myself, actually. There was an Ajax tea that we supported and all sorts of other projects relating to veterans. We, of course, had probably hundreds, I don't know exactly the numbers yet, of visits to care homes. And in fact, I went to one myself. I went to one, I always go to a care home on Mitzvah Day and I always take my family because I think there's nothing like it to really see what you can do when you take the trouble to go and interact directly with people who may be lonely or isolated or just want some some company. So lots and lots of projects relating to people living in care homes. We had projects where we we had cemetery cleanups, we had food donations, we had hundreds of supermarkets that had people in green hats and stickers standing outside them collecting food, taking it to food banks. I mean, some of these projects are quite sad in the sense that we shouldn't be living in a society which needs food banks in 2018. And some of them are things that are just acts of loving kindness, that however much money was in the system, it's still a mitzvah to go and visit people who are alone or or who are isolated or who are lonely. And that sort of thing is a a real mitzvah. That's, That's what it's all about, is acts of loving kindness. Now, if mitzvah day is only one day in the year, what does the charity do for the rest of the year? (laughs) Well, the idea that all of a sudden on the 18th of November, all of these things spring up on their own is quite clearly not what happens. It's like a magic wand, isn't it? (laughs) Just getting the thing off the ground is an enormous piece of infrastructural work. So... The preparation for Mitzvah Day, if you're a coordinator, you probably spend a couple of months setting it up. So from our point of view, we have to plan the projects even before that. And we have to think about how we're going to communicate with the coordinators, how we're going to support them, how we're going to... A lot of the charities we deal with centrally, like Jewish Care, all of the big charities, we're building charity relationships. We are building interfaith relationships. We also very much feel that, of course... Mitzvah day shouldn't be one day. Mitzvah day is every day. Mm. So that once you've done your visit to the care home or once you've done your visit to the food bank or whatever it is you've done, 
all of our projects are designed that you can do them again. I call it do it againable. And so that you should be able to feel confident the next time to go into a care home, which maybe you didn't feel confident the first time. You should feel confident to be able to reach out to the local mosque where maybe you didn't feel confident before. So the aim of the thing is not more and more and more things happening on Mitzvah Day, even though that's wonderful. The aim of the thing is building long-term relationships and building relationships with charities that need us. And that's really what we're in the business of. Now, we think of, certainly here, of, of Mitzvah Day being in London, but of course you do Mitzvah Day all over the country, don't you? Absolutely, yes. From sort of the north of Scotland to Exeter and Bournemouth, down in Kent, all over the country there's Mitzvah Days going on. Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, they all have very strong Mitzvah Days. And it's one of the things that as I'm, I'm most pleased about. Partly it's because... Some of these very small communities in particular feel disconnected to the centre and to the Jewish community. And Mitzvah Day is a way for everybody to engage. It's also a way sometimes for people in smaller communities to reach out to wider society. And particularly in days where people are a bit anxious sometimes about being out on the streets as Jews, or very clearly as Jews, what Mitzvah Day does is it gives people an opportunity to go out literally onto the streets and say, no, we're Jewish, we're doing this wonderful project, please come and join us and to be part of the local community. One final question. You mentioned earlier on there are 30 to 40 different communities and you mentioned that you have different faiths. What other faiths have joined in on Mitzvah Day? Oh, all the faiths. I think that you, you name it, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, Buddhists. I'm not sure this year whether we had Zoroastrians, I need to check, but, but basically almost every faith group, but importantly, actually, also people who are not part of a named faith group. And I'm very aware that many people in Britain today don't associate with a faith group, but do associate with some sort of belief group, or are just good people themselves. So I don't think that we should fall into the trap of thinking that all good work is done by faith groups or that only faith groups have got good values. I think that's far from the truth. I think that we share good values and we share them in a particular way with other faith groups. But what we try and do is reach out to all people, whether they are of faith or of oh, fact no. not of faith. Laura, thank you very much for coming on the show today and telling us all about this. And uh, may you continue to go on from strength to strength. Most welcome. Thank you for having me. Now for the Rabbinic Thought for the Week, and this week it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz of Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. Our shul recently concluded its search for a new senior rabbi, and so a new and exciting opportunity beckons both for my colleague and our congregation. If we had canvassed our 3,000-plus adult congregants as to the must-have qualities expected of a congregational rabbi, we would have been confronted with as many qualities as we have congregants. Let me share with you this anecdote told about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a theologian and tireless human rights activist of the second half of the last century. For a while, he was in charge of admissions at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. An applicant for the rabbinical course at the college told Heschel in an interview that he had walked a few miles from his home in 70th Street to the college in 120th Street. Heschel asked, did you see the homeless woman on 96th Street, the one with a hand-printed sign and blankets? The student said he had not. 
Heschel asked, tell me, did you see the army veteran on 117th Street? A grey beard and a few teeth and always wears a baseball cap. Again, the student said he had not. And what about, persisted Heschel, the tall man with dreadlocks, always with his hands in the air praying? Again, the student responded he had not seen this man. Heschel remarked, how can you become a rabbi if you don't see the human beings around you? I would add, see them, see their need, feel their need in your kishkas, and respond to their need with your heart and hand. A rabbi's principal role is teacher. A teacher is an exemplar of Judaism who teaches above all through personal example. The successful rabbi is the one who informs, inspires his, her congregation to become equal exemplars of Judaism. Marlene Bakodesh Vilomaridin. Rabbi and congregation together, not descending but ascending in levels of worthy moral conduct, on the rungs of holiness that connect heaven to earth and God to humanity. Thank you to Rabbi Stephen Katz for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Sir Eric Reich, Dr. Vivi Lacks, and Laura Marks. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. And you can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Clive Roslin. Me, Kate Fulton. And me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.